You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. A hammer blow is how publicans are describing the decision not to allow pubs reopen next Monday as planned. Confronted by a rise in the rate of COVID-19 infection, the government has deferred the phase lifting of pandemic restrictions until August the 10th at the earliest. As well as the pub staying shut, current restrictions on numbers attending functions will remain in place. Social visits to people's homes will be limited to 10 people and face coverings will have to be worn by those of us in shops. We can talk more about this now with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, who joins the studio. Very good morning, Minister. Good morning. Thanks Thank for you coming for to talk me. to us. Thank you for having me. Can, can we talk first of all about the spread of the disease or what's understood about the spread of the disease in the community at the moment? The number of new cases each day mm. still seems relatively low. I think it was 14 yesterday. So what's happening that's caused the National Public Health Emergency Team to recommend a pause in the reopening of the country and for the government to agree to that? We have been doing well. The, the leadership from public health advice and the huge solidarity across the country has stood us very well. So the prevalence is low. We have one of the lowest prevalences of the disease in the European Union at the moment. Hospital admissions are very low and ICU at, uh, beds are very low at the moment. Testing and tracing is very good. In the last seven days, we've done nearly 50,000 tests and the tracing, tracing is ramping up. We've had more than 1.3 million people download the app and please mm-hmm. keep, keep doing it. Uh, and we've introduced mandatory face coverings on public transport. So we have been doing well. The public have been doing well and we have been well advised uh, by public health experts. So why now, the polls? So they're, they're very concerned. So they, they, they met yesterday. They wrote to me. They met with the Taoiseach or rather the chief medical officer met with the Taoiseach, met with me afterwards. This OR number, which we're, we're all very focused on, uh, has gone above one. They believe it's somewhere between 1.2 and 1.8. If it's 1.8, they believe that within about three weeks, we could be up to 150, 160 cases per day, which obviously is a completely different place we don't want to be in. There have been some big clusters. There's a key measure they look at, Brian, which is the 14-day cumulative cases. So, mm-hmm. the, so the total number in the last two weeks per 100,000 population, that's gone up from 2.5 cases to 3.9. So a big jump. They've also cited the five-day average. That's gone up from an average of nine new cases a day to 22 new cases a day just in the last three weeks. So is this, is this possibly the start, potentially the start of a second wave? Well, their advice to us yesterday was essentially in order to stop that happening. So what have they advised? They have they have advised that we move the original phase four mm-hmm. start date back to the back to where it was meant to be or where it was originally planned, which was the tenth of August. Before the, the the reopening was accelerated by the previous government. That's right. Did we just move too soon to reopen then? No, I think what happened is when the public health experts said things are going particularly well, the prevalence is falling, the clusters are falling, the ore rate is below zero uh, below one there was a public health rationale for accelerating and therefore we did accelerate um, because we want, you know, nobody wants these restrictions in Mm. place. And now that the prevalence has gone back up, the ore rate has gone above one and so forth, the public health advice is slow it back down again. So the previous government and this government are following the public health advice, which has served the country very well. And at the moment, uh, very strongly, that is, we need to slow down. Uh, There are additional measures they, they have advised, which we have agreed with. One is that there is that people wear face cover in retail. Now, the advice is from right now that happens. We will yeah. bring through regulations, but but the advice is that we all begin to do that right there, now. There is, there is regulation to back up that requirement on public transport uh, with, with penalties. If you don't, something similar will, will be coming along in relation to, to retail outlets. It will, but the reality is the, the huge solidarity and the very clear understanding we all have and, and the awful consequences of this and the, the horrific human toll that this virus takes mm. means that on the first day on the buses, for example, nine in every 10 passengers arrived with a face mask. And you can be sure that many of the one in 10 who didn't, some can't wear them, some simply forgot them on the first day. So so if we continue as we have been, uh, my hope is that there would be no need for enforcement whatsoever. We we are in this together, and we will we will continue to suppress this virus together. Right. In, in relation to the, the 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 rise, the reported rise in the number of infections and clusters associated with um, uh, activity, people gathering in private homes, and that seems to be a particularly significant element of this. Uh, how is that going to be tackled? How is that being tackled? So what we're doing now is uh, taking the the NEFET advice, taking the public health advice to limit 
um, gatherings in homes to no more than 10 visitors. So to be clear, it's not 10 people. So if there's five of you living in the house, then you can be up to 15. Uh, Neffet have said from no more than four additional households, which is, I guess, a bit of additional yeah. complexity for us to bear in mind. But essentially, whoever's living in the house plus up to 10 people. Because it's gatherings in private houses that are contributing. Is, is this the case to this rise that we've seen? Or at least they're a significant contributor. That's right. There have been some very uh, serious clusters that the public health officials are very worried about. And, you know, they've walked me through some of the cases. And actually, mm. it's really very sobering, Brian. So what you can have is you can have one person uh, who is infected, but they're asymptomatic. They don't know they are. They go to a house party. You know, everyone's talking loudly. There's plenty of droplets going out into the air. You can end up with 20, 30 people walking out of that house infected. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure we protect everybody. And remember, it can be days and days before any of those people know that they they are infected themselves. But if the problem is in private houses, why are the pubs being told they can't reopen as planned from Monday? Neffet has looked at the international evidence as to what has happened in other countries. And what it tells them is that when restaurants opened and when restaurants were were following the public health guidelines that we have here and that are being followed here, it, it hasn't led to an increase in cases. The evidence on the pubs is different. The evidence internationally uh, that Neffet have seen is that when the pubs have opened, actually it has led to a, to a serious rise. But that's and not been our experience because the pubs, some pubs, those that serve food, have reopened and I don't think there's any problem been associated with that. So the chief medical officer was asked exactly this yesterday and what he said was from a from a disease perspective or from an epidemiological perspective uh, they're not they're not saying it's restaurants and gastro pubs they're saying it's restaurants and mm-hmm. if the pubs can act as restaurants then they're restaurants but what they're based on the or value and based on what they're seeing abroad they're saying now is not the time to open the pubs and we just need to bring it back to the original start date it's just that so many pubs around particularly in in, in small rural communities they're, they're very often the heart of the community aren't they they really and, and are they, they might often have just a handful of people in them on a, on a, on a Thursday night um, and it seems there's a kind of one size fits all approach to this pubs nightclubs which are a very mm. different kind of proposition they're also remaining closed very there's no flexibility yeah nightclubs I think are a very different proposition for all the reasons we would but understand. pubs are being treated the same way uh, pu- pubs are pubs are being all pubs are being treated the same that's the public health advice and can I say th- this is not easy this was not an easy decision to make we are following the public health guidelines essentially we are prioritizing the opening of schools, the mm. opening of healthcare facilities, the opening of the economy over the accelerated opening of the pubs. And can I say this morning, this is not done lightly. We really do understand that there are pub- publicans all across this country uh, who were waiting and waiting and hoping that they'd be able to open uh, on Monday. Mm. It hasn't been done lightly, but the public health advice is were we to open them right now, it could materially add to the possibility of a second wave, and that's just not a risk we can take. And the prospect or the the, the, the likelihood of, of looking at perhaps regional differences, uh, again, taking that into account with parts of the country that have had very reported very few cases mm. over a period of weeks, and they're saying, why are these restrictions been applied here when our experience of the, of the pandemic is very different to what uh, people in large cities around the country might be uh, having to confront. Yeah, and I think that's a very un- a very understandable and reasonable question for people to ask. What we do have, of course, is the prevalence of cases county by county. There is some thinking going on at the moment around the long-term strategy because, unfortunately, we're going to be living with this awful disease probably for quite some time. And certainly the the Uh, options of regional variants are being looked at. Right now, the advice from NEFIT is that it it applies across the country. And and does the the next phase of reopening on August the 10th or whenever, does it depend on this OR number coming back down below one? Uh, in part, it will. Yeah. Uh, the chief medical officer and Neffet will be in a better position to explain, but their view is they take everything in the round. So it's it's not one number, it's not one uh, not one fact. It, it's it's in the round. Where are we going, and are are we are we moving away from a second wave, or are we moving towards a second wave? Let me just ask you finally: the couple of minutes that remain about political matters, the the, the sacking of Barry Khan, his refusal to come before the Dáil as requested by the Taoiseach to to make a further statement in relation to this drink driving conviction. Do you think at this stage Barry Cowan should still come before the doll and give an account of what happened, particularly what he told Micheál Martin and when about all of this? I think really, Brian, that's a matter for, for Barry Cowan and, and, and it's a matter for the Taoiseach. I don't imagine there'll be too many people looking for that given the very serious consequences for, for Barry. Barry has, has, has served his country for many years. He, he has worked very hard and without prejudice to the incident mm-hmm. on a human level, 
uh, what has happened it must be incredibly difficult for him incredibly difficult for for his family so for now I, I would say that Barry should be afforded just a, a bit of time. He, he he has had to deal with the most serious of issues in terms of his uh, political career. I think he should be afforded a bit of time, given yeah. given see, that given that he's no longer in cabinet. I see, don't imagine too many people right. would be looking to follow. You that see, up. you see, the Taoiseach has now conceded he knew on the fifth of July about this Pulse report, uh, which uh, suggested that Barry Cowan had tried to mm. evade the, the Garda checkpoint in some way or that something, which he denies obviously. Um, but he only acted, Mr. Martin only acted when all of this became public. Yeah, to be honest, I, I haven't been following the hour by hour. I, I've been focused on Neffet and COVID and exactly what we were we, we could and could not announce last night and thinking forward to the green list. So I haven't forensically been following who knew what in, in, in what hour. I do know that it is a decision that won't have been made uh, lightly. It will have been a difficult day for Barry and it will have been a difficult day for the Taoiseach. Obviously, that's not something that he will have wanted or, or that Fianna Fáil will have, uh, you know, this is, this is not at all a, this, a situation the party would have wanted. Minister Stephen Donnelly, thank you very much for talking to us here on Maureen Ireland. Back to our main story, the sacking of Barry Cowan as Minister of Agriculture by his party leader and Taoiseach Micheál Martin. Let's go to the former minister's constituency. Our Midlands correspondent, Kieran Malouli, is in Tullamore. Good morning, Kieran. Good morning, Gavin, and indeed, welcome to the Tullamore Court Hotel. A sombre mood, one would have to say, in the Midlands this morning, and indeed in Tullamore, particularly among uh, friends and family supporters of of, uh, the former minister, uh, Barry Cowan, uh, elected uh, to the county councillor in Italy in 1992, elected to the Doyle in 2011, and uh, so prominent throughout that period here. I suppose, you know, the reaction on social media obviously has been easiest to gauge, I suppose, this morning, but perhaps one of the, one of the I suppose, uh, earliest comments has come out from a man known around the country, uh, a referee of, of some uh, quality, Brian Gavin, a former All-Ireland hurling referee, He'd be a neighbour of, I suppose, of Barry Cowan and Offaly, tweeting last night, uh, the decision Micheál Martin has made is like a referee losing control of a game and sends someone off harshly to try and show authority and regain control, and it's all about him, which will lead to his own downfall. Barry Cowan, head up. Now, that's the personal view of Brian Gavin, the man who's refereed several All-Ireland finals. But, uh, so lots, of, lots of support for, for Barry Cowan here, but also lots of people asking questions. I'm joined in the Tullamore Court by Councillor Declan Harvey, himself a former colleague, a councillor here for 11 years. Declan Harvey, what is the response? You must be uh, disappointed and indeed shocked by what happened last night. I'm devastated. I was discussing with Micheál Martin's decision to... Uh, to to stack Barry Cohn. Uh, Barry and I have worked together for the last 11 years. I would, at this stage, I would like to wish Barry and his family all the best going forward and hopefully in time he could vindicate himself. Did, did you see it coming, I suppose? That's the question. You know there's been a controversy for several days, yet, uh, yet locally I know many people in Fianna Fáil felt this was blowing over. Well, I, I didn't see it coming. I thought it was blowing over myself and I thought Barry had answered all the questions. He, he got up in front of the door and spoke to everybody. He answered the questions. Can you understand the disquiet which was still there, nevertheless, after the, the Sunday newspaper reports again coming out, this allegation about evading a Garda checkpoint? Yes, I can understand, but at the same time, I, I, I thought it was done and dusted. I really did. I thought Barry had answered all the questions, and uh, I just want to give his, his, Barry, his wife and his family time to reflect and try and get things in order, OK? Big, big disappointment for Fianna Fáil, obviously. No, no cabinet minister in the West, at least at this hour of the morning, and no cabinet minister in the Midlands now. Yeah, I'm very disappointed. We have no minister in the Midlands. Uh, Barry would have done that brief, uh, agriculture and marine, uh, a lot of justice, because he's, he's a very astute man and will be able to do his job. I'm disappointed with Micheál Martin, whether it was a Fianna Fáil decision or a Micheál Martin decision, I don't know. But I'm very disappointed. Uh, Garage Keegan is with me as well this morning here on Morning Ireland, Deputy Editor of the Tullamore Tribune. There is a wider, uh, of course, effect for all of this, a, a significant loss for, for uh, I suppose, government influence in the Midlands region and at a crucial time with the closure of Bordenamona and that just transition process just rolling out. 
Yeah, there has been a lot of focus in the last couple of weeks on the fact that the West of Ireland hasn't got a minister. But from a Midlands point of view, the Midlands often takes the view people here that, you know, they're the ones who are left behind. They're overlooked um, over the years. Uh, Brian Cowan, Barry's older brother, of course, was a minister from 1992 onwards. He was always a minister from then on, apart from the f- times when Fianna Fáil wasn't in government. I suppose the view here was that Barry Cowan being appointed a minister was, in a sense, a comeback from the trauma that, that Fianna Fáil, particularly in this area, suffered they see they suffered in 2011 when Brian Cowan went out of office. There is definitely anger here towards um, Michal Martin. Some Fianna followers around here still hold the view that Michal Martin was responsible responsible in part for Brian Cowan's demise. But the wider issues are that, yeah, this is a, a critical time for the Midlands, uh, Bordenamona and the ESB, the loss of power stations, the, the, the greening of Bordenamona, the end of, of peat harvesting. So there are, are thousands of jobs at risk and um, Barry Cowan was seen as a, a strong voice on those issues He, uh, when I spoke to him on his appointment one issue we actually discussed was the fact that he played a role in the programme for government negotiations and he was very pleased that uh, regional balance was um, at front and centre in the, the actual programme for government so I think it was something that he was keen to stress in his time in government I mean, you talk about you know the role of Michael Martin, but what about the role of Barry Cowan himself? I mean, many people in Tullamore are still sitting up this morning, scratching their head and saying, "What was going on here? Why hadn't he got a proper license? Why didn't he explain things at an earlier date?" I suppose my own view is that the hindsight is wonderful, and that that he should have um, fessed up, if you like, to Michael Martin in 2016 when it happened, and maybe he would have saved himself a lot of bother. Now. Um, people genuinely are asking the question, apart from those who are very loyal to Fianna Fáil they're saying why did he still have a, a provisional licence at the age of 49 and I think that's something which prob- was probably in Michal Martin's mind when he made his decision last night uh, but immediately yesterday people were asking the question you know why what happened uh, between three o'clock in the afternoon and eight o'clock and um, I think that's something that that will t- take a long time for that anger to abate. Okay, uh, there we have to leave it. Uh, Gerard Keegan and Councillor Declan Harvey, thank you both for, for joining us. Uh, as I say, a sombre mood in, in Tullamore this morning. Uh, Councillor, Deputy Barry Cowan, as he is now, lives in the Clara area, but is closely associated with the town. Uh, Fianna Fáil councillors in the area are expected to meet later today, and indeed the Fianna Fáil Corla Cantor uh, representatives later on, and give their own reaction to the dramatic events of the last 24 hours. Back to you in the studio. Let's return now to the consequences of the pandemic because these are worrying times for travel agents. Despite the rise and rise of online bookings, 15% of the population still book their holidays or business trips through an agent. But since the outbreak began, agents have been refunding trips instead of making new bookings. With no money coming in at what should be their busiest time of the year, our reporter Jill Steadman has been finding out how businesses are coping. There's an awful lot of people out there who are itching to go, ready to go. Bags are packed. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. While many are dreaming of holidays in the sun, the team at Fahi Travel in Galway say few people are actually booking. Maura Fahi is managing director of the family business. We have seen a huge fall off in inquiries, to be perfectly honest with you, for July and August. Uh, there's too much uncertainty out there. We cannot advise people to travel against government travel advice. We just can't do it. At the moment, the government is advising against all non-essential travel abroad. This day next week, it's due to release a list of countries that people can travel to without having to quarantine for two weeks on their return. But Mora says that's too late if they have any hope of doing business this summer. I understand the process is a very difficult one, but uh, it's very, very late for people to be starting to make plans. We, we need people travelling in August. If people are going to try and get away before children go back to school, they need that clarity very, very soon. While the government is sending one message. People living in Ireland are asked not to make any unnecessary overseas journeys until further notice. So please, holiday at home in 2020. The airlines are sending another. Italy is now open. Fly Ryanair to top holiday destinations such as Naples, Rome, Palermo, Sardinia and more. Choose from over 1,000 daily flights. Noel McAuliffe, owner of Travel Focus in Cork, says these mixed messages are causing a lot of confusion. Obviously the Department of Foreign Affairs have their 
um, travel advisory in place, which is understandable. But the airlines are flying and the airlines are encouraging people to book and to go. Um, so on one hand, the government are saying don't travel. The airlines are saying, you know, travel, everything is fine. And the consumer is falling down in between. For Noel, the pandemic and the lack of clarity for the future has devastated his business. Since 1998, when I started the company, we've been through the Gulf War, we've been through SARS, we've been through volcanic ash clouds. Um, You know, we've been through many, many different things that had serious impact on our business, but nothing that completely stopped our business. Um, This pandemic literally overnight shut our business down. Um, The world's travel economy essentially just shut for three or four months. There are over 200 travel agents across the country with 3,500 staff members, all in a similar situation. Claire Dunn, Managing Director of the Travel Broker in Dublin, says the industry will need a lot of support. We need obviously a continuation of the wage subsidy scheme. That's absolutely vital for us. If we don't have that, I think there will be a lot of a lot of businesses will just have to close down because speaking on behalf of my own company, the travel broker, we couldn't pay wages at the moment because we literally do not have any money coming in at all. Um, I think some sort of grant aid would be really important. We've suffered, as I say, huge losses because we've had to refund the money that we had made last year. So that money has had to go back out to clients. So we're in pretty dire circumstances. The Irish Travel Agents Association says it will continue lobbying for supports to ensure the survival of the industry. For Claire, Noel and Mora, they're optimistic that in time they will get their customers back up in the air. There's a lot of people in the country who really are at the end of their tether and a holiday means an awful lot to them. People are always going to want to travel. Travel is going to be needed from an economic point of view around the world. So. I think you have to be optimistic. I mean, if you're not, you you just give up, don't you? We've got a couple of ski inquiries. We've had one or two bookings for Christmas time. So people are prepared to travel. I mean, they are going to get back out there and um, take to the skies. Maura Fahey, Managing Director of Fahey Travel in Galway, ending that report from Jill Stedman. Twitter is investigating a hacking attack of its site that targeted the accounts of some of its most high-profile users, including Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Our business editor, Will Goodbody, can tell us more. Will, what was the scam? Well, uh, Audrey, it was a, this is a really comprehensive and incredibly embarrassing hack uh, of Twitter, which raises serious questions about its security. It started emerging late last night. It manifested in tweets all very similar in nature that started appearing from the accounts of some very high profile users. Tweets essentially said the person uh, concerned wanted to give back to their community, that they support the cryptocurrency Bitcoin and believed others should too. And then claimed that all Bitcoin sent to a particular Bitcoin wallet, wallet listed in the tweet within 30 minutes would be sent back doubled. So it's essentially a scam that was trying to convince people to part with Bitcoin on the promise that it would make them money. And as the tweets were deleted by the account holders, others often, uh, often others were sent in their place. Among the list of people whose accounts were hacked, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, uh, former US President Barack Obama, uh, the current US presidential hopeful Joe Biden, businessman Mike Bloomberg, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the official accounts of Apple and Uber as well. So really high profile targets. And some experts have suggested that with this level of access, it's possible that the hackers also may have been looking for and stolen other personal information of the users concerned. What did Twitter do about it, Will? Well, Twitter boss Jack Dorsey came out a few hours after the attack emerged to say it had been a tough day for all at Twitter and that they all feel terrible about what had happened. And well, they might, you might say. Uh, The company also said it had detected what it believes to be a coordinated social engineering attack by people which successfully targeted some employees who had access to internal systems and tools. Social engineering is where a person is tricked into clicking a malicious link or sending sensitive details to a hacker because they think perhaps they are dealing with a legitimate person. It's very common, but one would have thought that 
tech company the size of Twitter would have had safeguards in place to protect against it. Anyway, Twitter said that the hackers used this access to take control of many high-profile visible accounts, including those with the verified blue tick, and then tweet on their behalf. It said as soon as it became aware of the incident, it locked down the affected accounts and removed the tweets and would only uh, restore access to the original account holders when they are certain that it can do it securely, a process which is already underway. It also limited functionality for a much larger group of accounts uh, while it continued to investigate. Okay, Will, thank you very much indeed. Our business editor there, Will Goodbody. Well, the figures are staggering. The issues at stake hugely significant. The parties involved among the most globally powerful in business and government. The General Court of the European Union will this morning give its ruling in the appeal by Ireland and tech giant Apple in the 13 billion euro tax case. Following an investigation into Apple's tax arrangements here, the European Commission found that Irish revenue officials had issued rulings that substantially and artificially lowered the tax paid by Apple in Ireland since 1991. The Commission ruled that Apple owed $13 billion in back taxes, a ruling which has been contested by the government and Apple itself. We can talk to our Europe editor, Tony Connolly. Tony, the General Court of the European Union, it's a stage in the process because I think everyone expects that whatever the ruling today, it will be appealed, but how important a stage? It's a hugely important stage, Brian. Uh, this is the general court, which is in a sense the lower court of the European Court of Justice. It used to be called the court of first instance. So this is indeed the first stage. So whatever result we get this morning will most likely be appealed by whichever party loses. Now, to remind people what this is about, uh, in 2013, Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, got a grilling before a US Senate committee. They accused Apple of avoiding billions in tax through what were described as ghost companies in Ireland, and Ireland was accused of being a tax haven. And as a result of that hearing, the European Commission launched an investigation into Apple's tax affairs, and that investigation concluded in 2016. Now, the two central allegations by the Commission are that in 1991 and 2007, the Revenue Commissioners granted two tax rulings or tax arrangements for Apple, which effectively rubber-stamped a way of determining the tax for two Apple subsidiaries, and they were Apple Sales International and Apple Operations Europe that that were both managed uh, outside of uh, Europe, but were effectively traced to uh, a head office in Ireland. Uh, Now, these two companies dealt with all the sales of Apple products outside of the Americas. Uh, But the central allegation by the Commission is that the profits recorded by these companies were attributed internally by Apple to this head office, which the Commission says only existed on paper and couldn't therefore have generated Mm. uh, these huge profits. Um, And in effect, under the provisions of Irish tax law, which have since been changed, um, these were not subject to tax in any country. Uh, And as a result of that, in in 2003, according to the Commission, Apple paid only 1% of tax on those huge profits mm. and in 2014 paid only 0.005% um, of tax uh, this related to Apple Sales International. So this, the yeah. Commission said, was uh, illegal state aid. This was Ireland effectively granting money to a company at the disadvantage of everybody else and under EU law, that's illegal. So it was a judgment or or ruling in relation to state aid, not in relation to our our tax affairs or tax rates or tax arrangements here in in that sense. And there was a lot of criticism at the time of the government's decision to be party to this appeal. Do we know, Tony, if the the judgment goes against the government and Apple today, will the government continue to this appeal process? I think it's widely expected that the government and Apple will both appeal if they lose this case today. These are two separate cases. Um, Apple is appealing the judgment by the Commission and Ireland is also appealing. Now, they may be handled as one a single case by the court. We'll have to wait and see uh, at around 10 o'clock Irish time when the judgment comes out. Uh, but it is most likely that uh, mm. both uh, entities would appeal if this judgment goes against the company and against Ireland. Likewise, if it goes in their favour, the European Commission is likely to appeal uh, this issue because this is a hugely important test case for the way 
global multinationals are taxed uh, internationally and uh, at European level. And just a, a final question, briefly, if you can, Tony, the, the money involved, the 13 billion, that's been placed in an escrow account, a separate c- account controlled by financial advisors. Uh, wh- what's happening to that and what might happen to it if, if the ruling eventually was vindicated? The money was placed in an escrow account, uh, 13.1 billion uh, in 2018, and that's been managed by three uh, separate companies. Uh, Amundi, BlackRock Investment Management and Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Uh, Now, they have been using that money for what they're calling low-risk investment Mm -hmm. uh, and the taxpayer is protected by the outcome of any of those investments. Now, it has declined. It declined in the first year by 16 million, and then in the second year by uh, 249 million euro. Yeah. Now, 209 million of that was granted to a, a non-named third country as a tax payment, and that is important because the Commission has laid out the possibility that if other European member states who feel that that tax should have accrued to their country, uh, they could appeal and right. they could get a slice of this Very money, but we'll have to wait and see. Very good. Tony, for the moment, thank you. We'll be hearing no doubt more from you in the course of the day. The time just coming up now to uh, 7.45. Next week, the government will unveil its plan to help businesses and stimulate the economy. Some information is starting to emerge. There are likely to be targeted tax changes and the commercial rates waiver will be extended. In the meantime, more details have been published of the long-promised credit guarantee scheme for small and medium-sized businesses. The state will back 80% of the value of these loans. According to the latest figures, 345,600 people are receiving the pandemic unemployment payment, while a further 410,000 people are having their wages subsidised. With us is the Thonishta and Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation, Leo Varadkar. Good morning. Morning. The hope is that this credit scheme will make low-cost loans available to businesses. Are the banks fully on board? Um well, I'm, I'm meeting all the main CEOs of the big banks this week uh, to, with Minister Dunne to find out exactly that. Um, but I, I think it's important to uh, say what the idea is behind this. You know, it's all about getting businesses open. It's all about helping them to stay open and helping them to keep on and take back their employees. So we saw last week the number of people on the pandemic unemployment payment fall by 67,000. Uh, it's down about 42% since the peak, and that's encouraging. But we need that to be sustained now for the next few weeks and months. Uh, and that means backing business and backing employers. And that means a mix of me- a mix of actions. It means things like grants to help them reopen. It means uh, waiving commercial rates, which we've done, the wage subsidy scheme, helping to meet some of the costs like payroll, uh, and also giving businesses access to um, loans on much better terms and conditions than they have now. Uh, And this legislation agreed by Cabinet yesterday will help us do that. That needs to be followed up by uh, actions and a response from the banks. And I'm meeting all of the major banks this week uh, to talk to them exactly about that. The thing is, though, if you can't trust them on mortgages, can you trust them on this? Well, I think the best approach to all of these things is trust and verify. Uh, so trust, but also then double check uh, to see whether um, what's been promised has been delivered on. And certainly in previous discussions, or at least officials, uh, discussions involving officials, what banks have said uh, is that if we gave a better guarantee, uh, an 80-20 guarantee with no portfolio cap, and crucially, by getting too technical about it, crucially that's what this legislation does, it removes the portfolio cap, um, that that would allow uh, the banks to do what we want them to do, which is to offer loans for, you know, a five or six year period rather than three years, uh, to offer the offer, offer, offer lower interest rates than they currently offer, uh, and also to offer uh, a payment-free period at the start, you know, maybe six months to a year where you don't have to make any repayments, and that's the kind of finance businesses need. You want them to do this. How can you make sure that they do? Um, well, you know, that's that's exactly what this is going to be about. Um, do I have any you know, legal power to force them to lend? Uh, not really. Uh, there is a thing called a credit review office. And if a business is refused uh, loans, they can already go to the credit review, review office. About half of the appeals are actually upheld in favour of businesses. So that, that already exists. Um, but rather than using those kind of sanctions, which do exist in law, uh, what we're trying to put in place is a guarantee that will incentivise the banks to lend to business. And, you know, the government is willing to take 80% of the risk here, which is very substantial. Uh, and we're saying Not to the banks, as much, though, as in some other countries. In the UK, the government is taking 100% of mm. the risk. And small businesses here have said that Ireland's trailing behind the UK in this regard. Well, there's always 
two aspects of that. There's the percentage risk and the portfolio cap. So we're saying 80-20 with no portfolio cap. Um, I, I considered going to 100%, uh, as did government colleagues. We think that would be a mistake. Uh, Why so? Because if we did that, then the banks would take no risk whatsoever. Uh, and if somebody has no skin in the game, uh, takes no risk whatsoever, uh, the taxpayer is 100% liable for any business that doesn't pay back its loans, uh, then there's no disincentive to avoid reckless lending or lending to companies that sadly may not be able to pay the money back. Mm, But in the UK, didn't they go to 100% because they found that anything less Mm. than that just didn't work? Well, they did. But whether that's the right decision or not remains to be seen. Uh, You know, you could find in a few years time the British taxpayer being on the hit for that. And that would mean higher taxes for workers, for ordinary people, for businesses too. Now, we do have credit guarantee schemes in place already. And, you know, hundreds of millions have already been drawn down from those schemes. So we do know they work. Um, about 100 million from the one that was set up back in 2012 and about 150 million from the COVID one set up more recently. Uh, but we want lending of about 2 billion to be out there uh, in the economy. And we believe that uh, this approach will provide uh, much more attractive loans to businesses. And it's not just new loans. Um, it's also, in some cases, uh, businesses refinancing uh, debt that they're rolling over. So they'd be able to refinance it at lower rates. Uh, and it's open to any business uh, with up to 500 employees and any business that's lost um, about 15 percent of its profit or turnover. And when will it start then? When do you want to see those loans happening? Uh, we'd expect it to be started in the autumn. You know, the bill was only 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 being published today. We'll have it through the houses before uh, the end of July. Uh, and we'd expect then, you know, September, October to have it up and running. You've mentioned the pandemic unemployment payment. This morning's Irish Examiner says that there's going to be a phased reduction of this payment and that by Christmas it will be at the same level as the regular unemployment payment, which would be a huge cut. Is that the case? Well, no decision on that has been made. So um, that's not the case, at least not as of today. Uh, Actually, the position as of today is the pandemic unemployment payment ends on the 10th of August. Mm, But you've already Um, signalled that it will be extended. Yeah, it it will need to be extended. And it was was never intended that it would just stop overnight, that it would have to be phased out. Um, And I think everyone understands that's necessary. So it will be phased out. I mean, it is likely to be cut then in August. Is that the case? there have already been uh, changes, for example, uh, and um, and and the idea. But is, those is were changes, weren't they, for part-time workers were, rather yeah, than yeah. for people who had been working full-time that's, before uh, the pandemic. That, that's right. You know, the, the the truth is, the pandemic unemployment payment uh, is paid at a rate that is, you know three times higher than in Northern Ireland and our nearest neighbour like Britain and you gave comparisons of Britain uh, there a moment ago um, and I think everyone appreciates that it wouldn't be affordable to keep it in place forever and also wouldn't be fair that some people who lost their jobs for example uh, in January or February of this year are getting paid 200 or 203 euros a week whereas some people who lost their jobs since are, are in 350. So there but will be a phased even, reduction. But it's not even as straightforward as that. There actually are some people, particularly people with dependents, who would be better off on on, on the regular social welfare payments because uh, they have dependents and you don't get extra extra money for that in the pandemic unemployment payment. So the idea is to regularise the situation over a period of time uh, and bring the pandemic play, uh, pandemic unemployment payment back in line with regular job seekers. But the most important thing is to get people back to work. And 42% of people who were on the pandemic unemployment payment are already back to work. Uh, I'd like to get that much higher. You know, um, 100% would be ideal, but, you know, certainly much higher. And the way we sustain that, the way we get people earning the money they, that they, they'd like to be earning or want to be earning again is to get people back to work, not not by keeping them on different forms of welfare payments. There have been conflicting reports as to whether there's going to be a VAT cut for the hospitality industry in this stimulus package. Will there be? Uh, you know, it's one of the things under examination. There are different things you can do with VAT. Uh, you can raise the threshold, um, which would be particularly helpful for small business. Uh, you can do rebates or you can reduce the rate. And again, all of those measures uh, are, are in the mix. You know, so you so haven't made the decision yet? No, we won't until um, until next Monday. Um, and we'll make the package publicly known uh, next week. But it'll be a mix of things. It'll be a mix of uh, extending the wage subsidy scheme, which is the main thing the business is saying to me that they need, uh, including in the hospitality sector, um, uh, an enhanced restart grant. And again, hotels, restaurants in particular uh, need that to get up and up and running again. We are looking at business taxes like commercial rates, for example, and VAT. So it'll be a package that when you see it in the round will be of scale and it will be possible to deploy and implement quickly, which is really important. Can we talk about Barry Cowan? Eamon Ryan said yesterday on Drive Time, I think further questions are being asked and I would imagine they will have to be answered. Is he right? 
Um, I think he is. Um, you know, we know that Minister Cowan committed a road traffic offence uh, four years ago. Uh, he's apologised for that. He paid the price for it, which was a three-month driving ban. Uh, and he since regularised his affairs and has a full clean licence. Um, so he's been punished for that mistake. And, you know, I don't believe anyone should be punished twice uh, for that mistake. Um, but, uh, you know, a different issue ha- has arisen now since then, uh, which is... Uh, this Garda report that he may have tried to avoid a Garda checkpoint um, and he says that's untrue he's made a complaint to the Garda about that to have that record corrected and I understand that the Garda um, are carrying out an investigation into that and uh, at least until that investigation is done there probably isn't any more to say about it um, but we will have to see what the outcome of that investigation is. So the opposition though want him to answer further questions now because they feel they didn't get a chance mm. to question him last week and then we had this story emerging over the weekend. Yeah I, I, I'm aware of that and um, you know I'm sure Mr Cowan will answer any questions that are that are pertinent but more important is that uh, you know he has made a complaint to the Gardaí about this uh, guard report I uh, understand the Commissioner has appointed somebody to investigate that and really we need to hear the outcome of that investigation before any more steps Were you taken. annoyed though to see this emerging over the weekend when you thought the matter was done and dusted? Um, I, I, I did, you know, I did obviously seek an assurance from the Taoiseach, from the leader of Fianna Fáil, that there wouldn't be uh, any more revelations or any more stories other than what we'd heard already. Um, this has since emerged, but it is denied uh, by the Minister of Agriculture and he has made a complaint uh, to the Gardaí. Mm, and the we we haven't heard, though, from the Gardaí involved. And I think we will hear from the Gardaí Síochána in due course and I'm willing to wait for the outcome of that investigation. Leo Varadkar, thank you for joining us thank this you. morning. Security services in the United States, Canada and the United Kingdom have warned that Russian spies are targeting organisations trying to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Russia has denied any involvement. Dr Sally Leavesley is Managing Director of New Risk Limited. She's a security and extreme risk specialist and she's on the line now. Dr Leavesley, thank you for joining us. Um, how sophisticated do we know is this hacking operation? It seems to be quite broad and the fact that it's been picked up uh, shows that it's not as sophisticated but that isn't uh, potentially a, a worry for Russia because it's it's a standard intelligence gathering operation. We know that it's a wide operation because it's also looking at supply chains so it's obviously trying to get through every, every person, their emails and the supply chain issues to get information on the approaches to the vaccine but more likely there is also a commercial and a national security interest how far are we and other countries into providing a vaccine because that's as important for Russia to know apart from its own research and do we know Dr Leavesley how successful they have been in accessing any information well, the British uh, uh, Cyber Security Centre has suggested that it's not known that any intellectual property has been taken. But we know that Russia and other major countries have been targeting universities uh, for a long time on intellectual property. So it's a pretty slick operation. The, the problem is that there is also a very major commercial threat to the markets, the financial markets, if this information also uh, is used by criminal gangs, which Russia usually does does employ. Because knowledge on a potential success, that forward knowledge also can affect what happens in the markets. Well, exactly. And it, it is very valuable information because some vaccines may be limited to younger people and not suitable to, to people over the age of 60, for example. And that's that's information worth having. It's exceptionally valuable. And remember that the patent offices will probably be being hacked. But more importantly, and what isn't discussed in the present release by the NSA, the American Intelligence Agency, as well as the British, is the worry will be going in through the building systems. So if you're looking down an electron microscope that's linked in uh, to, to a system, in a laboratory, uh, another country can see what you're seeing. If you're printing out results, 
the printer might tell you. And going in through older building systems can give you a link over into some of these um, unfortunately connected systems. As well as that, there will be significant worry about insider dealing where human intelligence manipulating people in a human side, this isn't cyber, but this is where the real payoff is inside those laboratories and connected to the supply chains. So those labs and organisations working on trying to find a vaccine, which we're all waiting on, would they be, what would their security systems be like in the cyber world? Oh, look, for years, I've been very assured at how the pharmaceutical companies have fully understood the danger of not only their people being approached, but also uh, physical entry and also through through the cyber network. As well, we have seen that the intelligence agencies in all countries are obviously supporting their national efforts for this vaccine. It isn't only Russia that is a concern, and it has been mentioned that China and Iran are being watched very carefully. What we are seeing, and my greater worry, is that the Russians, are, while the Russians are coming in the front door in this pretty obvious way, because these um, agents what, that they call uh, Cozy Bear have been known for a long time and seen in the American sort of elections, it's what Russia may be doing through the back door and what other countries may be doing through back doors that aren't being picked up. Those are the worries that should be going on every day in every laboratory. And Cozy Bear, do we know if they have direct links to um, the intelligence world in Russia or the political world? Uh, the the British uh, uh, Cyber Security Centre has made an unusual statement with a level of firmness uh, that it is uh, a Russian government. Uh, operation that they are seeing. Remember that the Russians and the British, they understand each other's intelligence operations very well. And it's a warning that's being given uh, by the British saying, look, we can see you in our systems. We can see what you're trying to do. We will block you. But it's also a warning to all of the pharmaceutical companies and particularly to individuals. But I think that warning needs to be broader. Who's suddenly a best friend? Who's cozying up? to you personally but on top of that it's the building systems we need to watch thank you very much indeed dr sally leavesley managing director of new risk limited Well, during the height of the COVID lockdown, half of those aged between 18 and 24 were unemployed. Almost a third of people aged between 25 and 34 were also out of work and dependent on the state. And while the country slowly reopens, both of these groups are still bearing the brunt of the economic fallout. They are the generation coping with high rents and precarious work. A wealth divide between young and old was growing long before COVID-19 arrived. So how did this happen and what can be done about it? Tommy Meskell reports. The milestones in life, settling down, maybe buying your own place, starting a family. My generation achieved most of those milestones by the time we were 30. My children's generation will not achieve those milestones, not only by the time they're 40, but maybe later. We don't have a mortgage there. We're not like, you know, getting married yet. It's like, it's just, it's just financially not really an option. This crisis is the second one that's happening to a particular group, those younger adults in their kind of late 20s, early 30s. The traditional ways that people would have dealt with this by going to look for work in other countries or other places, that's not really an option this time. And that really poses a huge challenge for, well, what then do you do? According to the Oxford Dictionary, wealth is defined as a large amount of money or property that a person or country owns. Not every person expects to be wealthy, but most hope to attain their own slice of the pie, a small piece that they know is theirs. Young adults, uh, those you know, around the age of 30, I've gone from about 70% of them owning their own home at that age down to to about uh, 30%, so a huge reduction. Dr Barra Rowantry is an economist with the ESRI. One field he specialises in is income inequality. Given that's the primary form of wealth for most households, 
there's then been a big changes in, 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 the, in the holdings of wealth with, again, young adults really having less of it uh, at, at the same age that previous generations w- would have, say, had their own home or, or, or that. How did something like that happen? Was it the recession 10 years ago that resulted in all of this? It's not just a thing in, in Ireland. It kind of seems to be a trend in many advanced economies around the world. And one of the things that really seems to be feeding into this is that housing costs are, are rising. So the cost of renting is rising. And so as a result, they find it harder to, to get on, on that property ladder in the first place and pushing it back later. That some people might listen to this and they'll be thinking, you know, I was 35 in the 80s or I was in my 20s and I was trying to make a go of it, and it was a lot tougher back then. And then, but I was in my 20s in the 80s, <laughs> and perhaps then your parents might say that they remember yeah. the 50s or something, yeah. and, and it, the 50s were very, very no, tough. Like, I was a teenager in the 80s, okay, so I got into the labor market in the 90s. Economist and broadcaster David McWilliams. The conditions were profoundly different. So yes, my college class emigrated in huge numbers. When I was young, even though it was very difficult and our starting wages were very low and interest rates were very high and mortgage rates were very high relative to income, etc. There was definitely a perception, it was borne out in the data as well, that if you did the right thing, you could probably do okay. If we divide the generations into various groups, so there's the baby boomers who are older than me, then there's the generation Xers who are my generation, and then there's the millennials. And if you look at the share of national wealth that they had when they were 35, which is important, because that's again to this idea that when you're 35, you should be actually at least have a stake in society. The baby boomers when they were 35 owned 27% of American wealth, okay? My generation owned 12%. So you can see the share is falling. And the millennials, the generation coming behind me, now only own 3% of American wealth when they're 35. I was um, living up in Dublin with my partner. We were renting an apartment together. 28-year-old Becky Moore. Starting to look at saving for our mortgage when COVID hit and then the first week of lockdown I was made redundant from a job I was at for a couple of years. Uh, my partner was still luckily working and able to work from home so we had to kind of put a stop to the whole saving for a mortgage. So I'm living with my partner down home um, in Wexford in his home house. Do you feel like it's harder to achieve the milestones that your parents might have achieved when when they were your age? Oh yeah, no, like it, it definitely is. Um, they find it kind of hard to believe that we're not like we don't have a mortgage or we're not like you know getting married yet it's like it's just it's just financially not really an option. Hello my name is Dr. Amy LaJoy and I'm a senior researcher at TASC the think tank for action on social change. At 32 years old Dr. Amy LaJoy is also a so-called millennial. She interviewed people recently of a similar age as part of research called Stories of the Pandemic. They spoke of how COVID has impacted them financially and how they feel about the future. I mean, there's an overwhelming sense of, specifically for this generation, of precarity in their work. So people aren't expecting to be in jobs for a long period of time because long-term contracts just aren't there. So we have a whole slew of workers that are on temporary contracts, are on hourly contracts. Some don't have contracts at all, I heard. And this is disproportionately affecting younger workers. And it's not even just that salaries are necessarily low, whereas that is the case in Ireland actually relies quite heavily on low paid work. I would say it's both things. It's precariousness of the work as well as as a low pay environment. Dr. Amy LaJoy of Task ending that report by Tommy Meskel. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.